Our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts now brings us to the first martyr of the church, and that is Stephen. We're not going to see his martyr today. We're only going to see him interacting with a certain synagogue and then being arrested. And the final statement that's made about him is the title of the message, a face like an angel. It says, and they looked upon him and they saw his face like an angel. Now, before we leave, I want to talk about what could that mean? That his face was like an angel. Was it glowing? Ooh. My wife asked last night, maybe it was a warrior angel. Maybe it was like, Arr. and they're like, oh, I've seen his face like the face of an angel. Now, the church is highly effective at this point in Jerusalem. I want to read you the last verse, Acts 6-7, which says, The word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the intensity of the church in the book of Acts is growing, and the intensity of the persecution is now going to grow as well. And I don't think the disciples were surprised by that, because Jesus had told the disciples over and over again, you are going to be persecuted. They are going to hate you for my name's sake. There is a hatred of Christianity growing in the world today, not just in the U.S., it's happening in the U.S., but in the world. There was a hatred in their day, and it is to be expected. Jesus said, they don't hate you. If you were part of them, they would love you. But they hate me, so they hate you. We stand for Christ, and we will be maligned, made fun of, lied about, because we are part of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6, 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out uh, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now that's something we rarely do. Oh, they excluded me? They cast out my name as evil? Woohoo! Jump for joy. We rarely do that. It says, For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did so to the prophets. So there is a reward in heaven, which I don't know that I can articulate all that well, but when we suffer persecution here for our faith in Christ, there is a reward that we receive in heaven. Now in John 16, 1 and 2, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble, so he's telling them in advance so they don't freak out. That they will put you in the, they will, pull, they will uh, put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are offering God service. When the early Jewish persecution, which included Saul, who became Paul the Apostle, Paul thought he was doing this persecution for God. They thought they were killing people and they were doing a service to God. Today in Islam, Christians are being killed around the world and they think they are doing a duty to God. Jesus said, the day is going to come and I don't want you to be surprised by it. One more, Matthew 24, 9 and 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and hate one another. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. 
We hang on to our faith even though we are in the midst of persecution. Now, persecution continues in our day. There is an organization called Open Doors. They minister to the persecuted church around the world. They gave a report in 2020 on the condition of persecution among churches. It said that at least 360 million Christians experience high, level, high levels of persecution and discrimination. Now, most of those are in Nigeria, um, some in Uganda. Uh, most of those have Islam influence that are involved in it. But it is growing. They say that that is up by 20 million from 2021. So 20 million more Christians receiving high levels of persecution than the year before. The group also estimated the number of Christians killed for their faith rose to 5,898, up from 22, from 4,761. So about 1,100 more people died because they were Christians. These are people that died for their faith. They're not just Christians that died in these countries. They were actually killed, verified that they were killed because they were Christians. Now, persecution is always growing in the United States and around the world. You remember in 2015, there were 21 kidnapped Egyptian Christians that were put into orange jumpsuits. And I think it was in Libya, I might be wrong about that country, but they were brought out and beheaded by ISIS. And we all remember when that happened. Now, as we consider the persecution of Stephen, he's going to end up, spoiler alert, and I've already said he's the first martyr. By the way, that's a Bible trivia answer, so you'll be able to win that, at least, answer in Bible trivia. I've also heard it twice on Jeopardy, and got it right both times, by the way, that, uh, that Stephen was the first martyr. Um, but in Acts 11, we're told the result of his martyrdom. It says, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, Antioch, and a major church got planted in Antioch, and the, and the word to no one, uh, and brought the word to no one but the Jews only. So by chapter 11, they still haven't gone to the Gentiles, even though in chapter 10 there are Gentiles that get saved. They're going out around the world because persecution has brought them out. The, the Christians that are getting saved now are Jewish, and they're remaining Jewish. They are not rejecting anything to do with Judaism at this point. The temple is still there. Jesus was Jewish. They went and celebrated Passover and the different feasts, and they are just continuing on with what they're doing. Now let's read about what happens to Stephen. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. We're told that he had great faith and power. And God was using not only the apostles, but certain men to do signs to point to the evidence of the writing of the scriptures. Out of the same time that these miracles are happening, the scriptures are going to come out of it. A sign is never there for itself. You don't ever look at a sign and go, what a great looking sign. Look at the elk on that sign. That's great artwork. A sign tells you to watch out for something else, to be aware of something else. And so the Bible says that the miracles of Jesus, of the apostles, of the Old Testament prophets, of Moses, were all signs. When you see a miracle, you look to see what it's pointing to. 
and whether or not it's true. The miracle is never verification that something is true because in the, in the last days there will be lying signs and wonders. Let me read that to you. The, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So in the very last days, the false prophet is going to do miracles to point to the Antichrist and people are not going to identify it as a lie. A sign, a miracle in itself does not verify truth. It points to something that you study for it to be proof, whether or not it is evidence. So Stephen was doing signs and wonders. Then verse 9, And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia disputed with Stephen. This is the only place we find the synagogue of the freedmen mentioned. Scholars believe that it was either Jewish people who were slaves who had been freed, maybe from Rome, and they made a synagogue because they had this in common, or they are Gentiles who had, had been a proselyte, they had become Jewish, they were slaves, and they had been freed. Maybe it's both of them, but they are Jewish. It's the synagogue of the freed men. They followed the scriptures, and there arose this dispute. Now, Cyrenians are from the area of Libya, which is northern Africa. Alexandria, this is probably Alexandria, Egypt, which is northern Libya. These are both large sections of Jewish communities. Also those of Cilicia and Asia, which would be the area of Turkey. So these people were from a large range of areas, and they were disputing with Stephen. Verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Two things were told about what they couldn't resist. He interacted with them and they could not resist his wisdom. This is knowing how to apply knowledge. He had the information for the issues of his day. In his day, they were looking for the Messiah. They had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. We know the passages that they believed were messianic because we have the Talmud, which is a commentary from their day. So we know what passages they believed were messianic. And so all he had to do was go to their messianic passages and show that Jesus had fulfilled it. Paul did the same thing. We're going to see that later on in the book of Acts when it says when he was in Corinth, when he was in, um, when he was in Ephesus, it says that he went to the synagogues and he reasoned with them that Jesus was the Messiah according to the scriptures. He knew the issues of his day. He knew what they believed. And so he was able to interact with them. Now it also says he was full of wisdom and spirit, which means that he didn't do this in his flesh which means that he wasn't angry, that he didn't demean them, that he didn't put them down. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So he disputed with them, but he disputed out of love and out of self-control and out of kindness. And I've got to say, I think that's probably the most effective way to dispute with someone. The Bible says the servant of the Lord must not argue. 
but be gentle to all, able to teach, that you may be granted to correct someone, basically. I, I paraphrase that passage, but it's what it says. We don't, the reason that we get in our flesh when someone makes a statement against something that we believe oftentimes is because we are insecure about what we believe. We don't know all of the arguments. So when we're at a meal with someone and someone says, I don't believe the Bible because it was written by men. We kind of get up, uppity. Oh, well, no, it was inspired by God. We kind of get uppity with it. Instead of maybe just going, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Do you, you think that every book written by men isn't true? So you don't believe the Bible because it was written by men and you think all books written by men are not true? Is that something you can go across the board with? So if you just start asking questions, and, and here I think is what's a really important part of what we're talking about, what we need to talk about today, you need to genuinely care about what someone says. Not just so you can have an opening, so you can, can get the gospel in there, but genuinely care about what they're saying. And if someone you know and love suddenly claims, I'm not a Christian anymore because the Bible was written by men, then you want to find out what they're talking about, why they do that. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? What happened that made you change your mind and to think that? And you genuinely care about their questions. You're not just asking them a question to get your in. You're actually caring about them. And out of a genuine caring, then the things that you share from there, people can see the genuineness. If you're just asking questions to manipulate them into a position to get them to a gotcha moment, that's incredibly ineffective. So you get a gotcha moment. What does that do? What is that going to do for you on any topic? If you end up with a gotcha moment, it doesn't do anything to further the gospel of Christ. But really caring about people, really interacting with people, really wanting to know what they, they are saying. When I'm talking with someone, when I'm bringing up Christ, and, and I have a couple of things that I do. One of the things that I do is I ask people if they believe in the afterlife. Now this may be a little bit easier for me as a pastor, but you're known as a Christian. And so when you say, what do you think happens when you die? Or do you believe there's an afterlife? Or do you believe in the supernatural is another one that I ask. Do you believe there's anything supernatural going on? And I'm really interested. I'm not just asking and waiting my turn to be able to say what I want to say. I'm letting them direct the conversation to where it goes. And it may get to where I can share something and maybe give them something to think about. But the first thing I'm doing is really caring about what they say. When, when you don't care about what someone says, when they're saying it and you're just like, you're chomping at the bit to throw something out there, they know that. They realize. But when there's an honest conversation that's going back and forth, where some questions can be brought up, I love what Greg Kokel says in the book Tactics. He says, if anybody gets angry, you lose. If you get mad, you lose. If they get mad, you lose. So you have to interact in a way that there's enough caring. And you can have conversations about politics and religion if you really are listening to what they say. I like to repeat things back to them. And I like to repeat it back stronger than they gave it to me. I don't want to repeat back a straw man that I could tear down, a straw man that I could tear down. I want to repeat back a strong man. I want to make their argument stronger. So I say, so what you're saying is about the Bible being written by men, and then I try to give their positions. 
and then start to go back in and look at some of the things that you might find in the Bible that are evidence against that. So if it's written by men, then why do we find some fulfilled prophecies? So, but, but I'm not, that's not my agenda when I'm first talking to them. And I think that's important. We want to talk to them in the spirit of wisdom and uh, of wisdom and of the spirit. Now, Stephen was the equivalent of the modern day apologist. He knew the issues of his world that were keeping people from Christ. And so we interacted with him about that. And you and I should know the issues that we are arguing against. He could give an answer for the argument of Christianity of his day. Those arguments will not work in our day. We need to know why people are saying what they're saying. And we need to get equipped for it. And most arguments against Christianity are exaggerated or outright lies. I'll, I'll give you an example. There are two modern neo-atheists. And when they are interviewed, they love to say, Christianity has done more harm to this world than any other group that has ever existed. Through the Crusades, through the Inquisition. Now, that is an outright lie because where in the Bible does it tell us if someone doesn't become a Christian, kill them? It does say that in the Quran, by the way. If you don't become Islam, to, to, to kill them with the sword, you persuade them with the sword. But never in the Bible does it say that. So true followers of Christ don't murder people, <laughs> generally. True followers of Jesus don't murder people. But let's just give them their argument. Let's just say that everything that's been done in the name of Christ, in the Crusades, and in the Inquisition, and anything else they want to throw in, where Christians in the name of Jesus did some violence to people. Let's just, let's just give them that. Then you simply ask them a question. Now there's irony here. You say, let's just take the 20th century alone. How many people were killed by communism in the 20th century by China, Russia, Cambodia, communist Vietnam, by Italy? What, what did communism do there? How many people died from that? And then you can kind of, if they, if they go, well, I don't know, you can go, well, conservatively, it's 100 million. Conservatively. Far more than were killed in the Crusades and the Inquisition. Far, far more than any of them. Now, do you see the irony of this? These are neo-atheists claiming Christianity is the most harmful thing that the planet ever had and, Cal uh, and communism is atheism that has done more harm to the world than ever before. So these are the kind of exaggerated claims that are made. And when you hear those exaggerated claims, if you don't know the information, if you haven't taken time to learn it, then you're probably a little insecure. And when they say that, you're like, no, no, it didn't. And now you're ready, but you don't really have the... But if you start asking questions, you start really engaging them. You start really, what do you mean by that? How many people do you think were killed? What groups are you talking about? Can you, think, can you see how those of the Inquisition were not really genuine Christians because Jesus said to love your enemies and they're killing their enemies? So can you see how this isn't real? So you can talk about those things because you're talking about it from a position of knowing what you're talking about. 
This is the reason I'm adding in a lot more apologetics into what I'm teaching. I want to equip you to be able to do that. It's the reason that we're talking about our Sunday school and our junior high and high school and young adults to have a lot more apologetics in it. Frank Turek once told me that there are basically, and he's an apologist, which means he, defend, he doesn't apologize for the faith, he defends the faith. It comes from the Greek word to defend, apologia. And he once told me, he goes to universities and has university students ask him questions. He gives his presentation, then has university um, professors or students give him questions. And he said, there's only about 20 questions. Then there's variations of those questions that you get. But once you learn the basics of these 20 questions and what the truth is about those questions, you're able to answer almost anything that, brought your, that is brought your way. You're going to hear nothing that is new. And so I encourage you, like Stephen, because he was Jewish and knew Jesus was the Messiah, knew the issues of his day, let's know the issues of our day. The, the reliability of the Bible is attacked. Jesus being a real person is attacked. Which again, we're talking about exaggerations. So I had somebody tell me one time, Jesus is a myth. He never existed. And I said to him, let's not talk about it. I was trying to hang out with him, spend a little time. He, he was obviously wanted to fight. And I was like, let's not talk about it. So a few minutes later, he said to me, you can't take it that Jesus was a myth, can you? And I said, let's not talk about it. And he brought it up again. And so the third time he brought it up, I said, okay, let me just say this. There's not one scholar, Christian or non-Christian, New Testament scholar, historical history scholar, there's not one scholar that teaches that Jesus was a myth. There is more historical evidence for Jesus than any other person on planet Earth. And the only people who believe that he was a myth are YouTube channels that are not giving any evidence. And he said to me, that's not true. And I go, look it up. It's all you got to do. If only we lived in a time where we had something in our hand that was connected to every computer in the world <laughs> that we could look it up to in. The next time that I saw him, he said to me, I don't want to talk about this, but you were right. <laughs> because he went back and looked up the, the evidence from scholars. Once you start going to people that know, they know Jesus. Why, why do we know this? Because Tatticus, a Roman, wrote about Jesus. Why would a Roman write about Jesus? Because Josephus wrote about Jesus. Now, Josephus' writings were tampered with, but we know that there is one section that wasn't when he talks about James, the brother of Jesus. So we know when he talks about Jesus, the so-called Christ, when he brings up Christ, that was tampered with. But we know the other section on the brother of Jesus being named James, becoming the pastor in Jerusalem, wasn't tampered with. Philo, a Jewish historian who wrote about Christ and the followers and what they believed and that he did miracles by magic. So he actually writes that he did miracles, but he attributes it to magic because he doesn't believe in it at all. But these are, the, that's why part of the reason historians go, look, there's no reason for Romans or for Jewish people. This isn't Christian history. This is Jewish and Roman history that writes about Christ. That's part of it. That's only part of it. So you've got to know these things that are out there. So Stephen knew the Old Testament. Now, Stephen's arguments don't work as well today for a specific reason. Because over time, Jewish leaders have denied messianic passages. 
Passages that we know from the Talmud, which was the commentary of the ancient world that they identified as messianic, all that Stephen and Paul had to do was go, here's Jesus in, in Isaiah 53. Here's Jesus in Acts 2. Here's Jesus in Isaiah 61. But today they go, those aren't messianic. They, they were on the table in their day. In our day, they take them off the table. And so in Isaiah 53, they'll say, well, Israel is the suffering servant. So that chapter's all about Israel. And, and when you hear that, you go, okay, let's just read it a little bit. And let's see if, if it really is about Israel. Let's just see what it says. So when you read it, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Right away, you got, I got a question. How, now Israel went through a lot of suffering. They went through suffering under Hitler. They went through suffering under Stalin. They, they, there were, there's only about 16, around 16 million Jews in the world today. More than that were killed in the 20th century. They went through a lot. So the wounded part I understand, but how was their wounding for our transgressions? And then you could, are you saying that Israel somehow is saving the world by your suffering for our transition, for our transgressions? He was bruised for our iniquities. How was Israel bruised? He's bruised, but how for our iniquities? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. How do I get peace from them being chastised? And by his stripes were healed? By the stripes of Israel were healed? Where, how does that work? You go a little bit further into Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but the rich with his death. And you may be able to try to argue that you know, Jews were buried with wicked and rich, so you may be able to do that. But then it says... Because he's done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You're saying this is Israel? That Israel never did any violence? That there was never any deceit found in their mouth? Can we go back to the Old Testament? Now we're talking to Jewish people, right? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's start in Genesis with the destruction of Shechem. Let's start with the brothers selling Joseph into slavery. Let's talk about the rejection of God for Baal. You can't say, let's talk about them sacrificing their children to Baal Molech. You can't say Israel never did any violence, nor was there any deceit found in their mouth. But we can say that of Jesus. So we have to somehow, and usually by getting them to respond to it, get them to put the pieces back on the table. So to ask them, who is it then who has no deceit and doesn't do any violence? Doesn't that sound like the Messiah? You're trying to get them to go, yes, it does. That doesn't sound like Israel to me. That sounds like the Messiah. Now, realize Israel, anti-Semitism is huge today. And it's growing. People hate the nation of Israel. And they want to attack it. And some of, the, some of the things I erase from our YouTube page, I'm amazed at. It is all out racism. And I'm amazed that they even write it out. It's a complete hatred of Israel today. The Bible says that in the last days, the entire world will hate Israel. I don't know if you know what's happening over there today, but they're being assaulted from every side. From Hamas, from the Gaza Strip, from uh, Hezbollah, from Lebanon, from Iran, from Syria, which is a border to Israel. There, there's things escalating in that part of the world. So when we want to reach Jewish people, we got to find out, well, what do you think about the Messiah? You've got to, you can't just assume messianic passages that are so clearly messianic like, like 
um, Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me. The word of Messiah means anointed. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set captives free, to set, you know, those things, obviously Messiah stuff. You've got to get them to put the pieces on the table. You've got to find out what do you believe about the Messiah? Who do you believe that he's going to be? What passages do you think talk about the Messiah? Now as you're interacting and they get the pieces up there, now you can begin to talk about how Jesus fulfilled the pieces that they're identifying as being messianic. Or come back to these pieces and show them <coughs> how they can't be Israel, but they've got to be messianic. But this all has to be done in a spirit of wisdom and the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't be argumentative because what good does that do? So even if you get them, even if you've got a gotcha moment, what good does that do? Pat yourself on the back. I got them. Doesn't mean anything. If the gospel hasn't really been furthered, an opportunity to further the gospel. So Stephen knew that <coughs> and with great wisdom, he did these things. Now, let's pick it up in verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemy against Moses and God. So this is a lie uh, to a Jew, the Jewish mind. The greatest prophet outside of Jesus, this is for a Jewish Christian in the early day, would have been Moses. He was their deliverer. He was the most important prophet. He didn't talk against him or God. And then they stirred up people and elders and scribes and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. So they went and violated his Fourth Amendment, although he wasn't a United States citizen, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a violation of search and seizure, right? But that's what it was. They came and they got him, they grabbed him, they brought him before the council. This is the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law, the temple and the law, again, he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. He's not speaking blasphemies against it. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Same argument they used against Jesus when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body, not the actual temple. And then it says, um, and change the custom of Moses delivered to us. Now, how much... Stephen or even the apostles understood at this point about the changing of the law of Moses, I don't know. They're going to understand later on that Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill it. I came to complete it. We don't have sacrifices today because Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. We don't have a high priest today because Jesus became the high priest that gave the sacrificial lamb. We don't keep the Sabbath like on Saturday by not working and traveling so far because Jesus has become our Sabbath and we find our rest in him. Hebrews chapter four. He fulfilled every part of the law. But I don't think they, under, I don't think they had a clear understanding of it in this day. Maybe they were already starting to talk a little bit about the fulfillment of the law, but I don't think they had that. So they lied about it. Just like Jesus said that would happen. Now, the same thing happens to us today. People lie about what we believe. When you get into, and this is another thing that you can learn as much as you can about, and that's progressive Christianity. They lie about those of us who believe the, the Bible is our authority. They lie about what we believe. They, they straw man us while we're trying to strong man them giving credence to their argument where we can 
but they want to be able to straw man us to tear down our arguments rather than let us, letting us honestly speak for ourselves. And so they lied about them. So Matthew 11, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, and this is different than the ones I read before, has become true about Stephen. Here's what it says. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, when they say all kinds of evil falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He has a great reward that is in heaven. Verse 15. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now I'm going to tell you what I think this means. And here, I mean, hey, I could be wrong, right? Maybe his face was glowing. I don't know, but I don't think it was. I think that he was calm, cool, and collected. I think it's like when Jesus was being crucified, Jesus prayed for the people to be forgiven who were crucifying them. I think they had heard people curse them, beg them, scream, holler, threaten, but never had they heard anybody pray. And I think when someone was seized and drugged before the council, that they were scrambling for their lives. They were pleading, they were begging, they, they were maybe angry, but they looked steadfastly at Stephen, and I think Stephen was cool, calm, and collected. I think he was ready to give a defense. Jesus said, said be ready, and don't worry about what you're going to say in the day that they bring you before the council. I'll give you the words to say. And I think he was ready to do it. And I think that you and I, even in issues that are personal to us and that have a tendency to get our hankering up. I didn't even know what a hankering is. <laughs> but I know when my hankering gets up that we could have the face of an angel. That when we see something as appalling as the celebration of sin in a pride parade that, that demonstrates bondage and just the mo and, and in front of children wanting it to be in front of children and we see it we get angry but we're not going to win any arguments if we don't have the face of an angel if we don't come in led by the spirit to be able to maybe ask questions to be able to really begin to find out why they believe what they believe is okay why they think it's okay to have a drag queen reading for children to me, it seems to be if we stay calm, cool, and collected, we can interact with them and we can find out what they believe. Again, repeating it as a strong man, but then asking some questions about it. I'll give you an example of this. When I'm having a conversation with someone about abortion and they're claiming that the baby, because the first question I'll start asking is, what do you think is, is the fetus? What do you think that, do you think it's human? Do you think it's not? What do you think? And someone who is pro-choice will often say, well, it's not human at all. So then I'll say, well, I just have a question. 50 states, 50 out of 50, if you kill a woman who is pregnant, you're charged with two murders. And there are people doing time in jail because they assaulted a woman and the baby died and they were brought up on charges of murder and they're in jail right now for killing a part of the lady or for a clump of cells? No, a human life. So I'm trying to get them to the place 
where they can recognize that it's a human life. And then if it's a human life, well, how, how come you think abortion should be legal? Well, I don't think there should be any unwanted babies in the world. No unwanted babies. Yeah, no unwanted babies. Well, what if I had a baby here that was just nine months old? And it's unwanted. Would it be okay for me to kill that baby? Now, you're trying to do this without people getting their hankering up. That's hard to do because it's a touchy issue, right? But you're trying to make sense. You're just trying to get them to think of something. I'm not trying to get a got you moment. I'm just trying to get them to really think this through. Any of you guys, were you unwanted? W would it have been okay to have killed you because you were unwanted? I met a man last year who was the product of rape. He was brought up by his grandmother. His mother was raped. She decided to have him. She gave it to her mother to raise, so he was raised by his grandma. And he said, I'm really glad I wasn't aborted. When we actually see it in that way, the trite arguments of incest and rape kind of break down. It's awful. It's a horrible thing. All of us agree. But if you have a child that's a product of incest, are you going to kill it? Are you going to go, no, that's a product of incest. It's a, it's a second-class human. See, we can come in, in in trying to be polite. Now, this is, this is an inflammatory issue, right? Some of you guys might be, have been fine with me up until right now. And right now you're like, your hankering's getting up, whatever that is. But we should be able to have conversations. We should be able to talk about these things. And maybe I would not change your mind. I don't know. But at least we can have conversations. And I, I don't mind leaving it in the middle of the conversation. I don't have to bring it to a got you moment. I don't mind going, thanks for sharing with me what you were thinking. It's really helpful for me. And it is really helpful for me because we get in an echo chamber where all we hear is what we hear and what we believe. And everybody does that to some degree. So it is helpful for me. And I can say thank you for sharing with me. It's been really helpful for, for, for me to be able to tell you that. Years ago, I'm going to tell you who I voted for. This is bad. But years ago, my sister, who's very liberal, said to me, my older sister, said to me, why would you vote for Trump? I don't understand it at all. A man like that. And I said, there's one issue. If I really believe that a baby in, in a woman's womb is human, then how could I vote for someone who would be for killing that baby? What kind of person would I be if I really believed it was human and I, and I voted for someone who wanted to kill that baby? And she said, well, I understand that. So this is open conversation where there's some understanding. Did I change her mind? I, I don't think so. We haven't talked about it since. I don't think so. But at least we were able to have a conversation and she could genuinely understand where I'm at. What kind of person would I be if I believe a baby is a baby in the womb and I say, let's not worry about it? What kind of person would, would, would I be? No, we, 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 if that is the case and we really believe that, then we have to take a stand. That stand may cause difficulties, it may cause problems, but we want the face of an angel when we're doing it. And that's what I think that means. Now, I'm, I'm out of time. A couple quick things in closing. Number one, you are blessed when you are falsely accused, excluded, and persecuted. Jump for joy. All right, it's going to happen. Number two, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 
I would suggest reading some of the, the more popular books on apologetics to get up on this information. You can do it through audiobooks, so you can read them when you're working out or walking or, or you know, just spending some time listening to them. I, I do a lot of audiobooks now. Um, still, um, Evidence um, That Demands a Verdict is one of the best books that you can get to get you into the door. If you haven't really done any apologetic works at all, Josh McDowell wrote it a long time ago, but it's been updated by his son, Sean, and Josh McDowell. They did it together, and they updated it for more current cultural things, got rid of some of the mistakes that were made earlier in the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, um, A Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, another Get Your Foot in the Door book. It's very, a very easy read, doesn't take a long time to read it. If you want something more in-depth, um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. If you want to know about progressive Christianity and what they teach and believe and, and how to combat against that, then Elisa Childers' book, Another Gospel, will give you all the information that you need on those. Again, they're easy reads. Um, I listened to Another Gospel when we drove from Tucson to Albuquerque. We drove there, and then about halfway back, we were done with the book. And me and my wife had listened to it together as we drove. And so, you know, you can grab something to be able to get yourself some information and get up to speed so you've got some ideas. If it's just 20 questions and a variation of them, then let's figure out what those are so that when you do interact with it, you, you're not insecure, but you're able just to go calmly, collectively. Let's talk about this a little bit. I got a couple questions for you. Really caring about them, right? Because you want to really care about the, the people. You want to really see them come to Christ. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we're able to take time today to consider the way that Stephen interacted with these freed men in this, this synagogue and the way he talked with them in wisdom and the spirit and the way when he was before the council, he had a face that was like the face of an angel. And Lord, I pray that we would be wise as we deal with the issues in our world that are contentious. They are very contentious. But we want to be able to deal with them without contending, without fighting, talking about the truths that are really there. And Lord, we pray that you would help to give us some wisdom and some insight as we talk about the transgender issue, the homosexual issue, the abortion issue, uh, the reliability of scripture, uh, as, uh, freedom of speech, just the different things um, that we see today. We pray that we would learn more about these, that we might be able to interact and have an opportunity to plant seeds, to water seeds, and to see people come to you. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.